Thank you, Providence, for being a faith-filled congregation. I just love being part of this group of people. So let us pray that God blesses all these seeds that have been cast this morning so far, but there's some more coming. So uh, if you've already been moved, got your money's worth, buck your seatbelts because it's going to probably be a double portion here coming up. So um, we have two guest speakers this morning. They're going to briefly share the platform this morning, and then I'm going to have a if we have time, I'll do a brief Q&A with them at the very end. But I love these two women and what they stand for. The first one's Renee Ballou. She was born and raised here in Denver. And she uh, currently works at the Denver Scholarship Foundation serving DPS graduates uh, with college scholarships. Uh, that organization, I think, is just 15 years old. 15 years old. And it probably didn't really take off until... I would say five to seven years ago. Um, and uh, I knew the, the previous director the, uh, and then also the, the current director. And they just have built a team of rock stars over there and have uh, that budget is exploding, their staff is exploding. And part of the reason is because Renee Ballou is on their team. She oversees a department of 40 uh, team members. Her operating budget is about $7 million in a $17 million org. They're serving over 5,000 DPS kids. This year, they will award six to seven million dollars of scholarships to DPS grads. Uh, there's currently 1,900 scholar, uh, scholars in the program, and they have a success rate of 83%. You know, folks, like Community College of Denver, for our neighbors, the graduation rate is 14%, right? So DSF scholars are at 83%. That's a game changer. So I've watched her work. I've uh, spoke to her staff. And uh, she's, she's just powerful. And we are courting her right now to be on the cross-purpose board. This is the final sale right here. So you'll all be really nice because uh, I need a boss like her, okay? Um, she's also, ironically, a recipient of a scholarship in this city to help get her through school. She was selected uh, by the Denver Business Journal as a top 40 under 40 leader. Then we have Debbie Speck. Uh, Debbie Speck is a force of nature. <laughs> uh, Debbie, I met her the first time, and I, I, I don't usually have these kind of meetings, but like I just wanted the meeting to go twice as long, and I wanted to meet with her again the next week. And uh, she had such an impact uh, in my life in that meeting. So she has done a lot. I'll have her talk about it. Um, but she's worked for the White House. She's worked for uh, an organization in Phoenix in community development. And then now she basically came to Denver to take Colorado Uplift, which has been a youth development organization for 30, 40 years in this city. Um, and she has now taken them national. And she was the first CEO of the national scaling effort of what became known as Elevate the USA. And in her brief stint, uh, now she's actually retired, but, uh, but she still works for them, I know that. Her brief stint, she now has Uplift working, or Elevate the USA working in 17 cities with three in the hopper. Uh, and uh, she uh, just placed one on, on the, uh, I believe it's the Navajo Nation, is that correct? And wants to give her life to put more of these chapters into First Nations uh, uh, communities. So if you don't find her at Elevate, you'll find her in the baby pool in her backyard, jumping on the trampoline with her grandkids or backpacking the Continental Divide trail. So uh, Debbie's going to speak first, and then Renee's going to come up right after her. Then we'll have the Q&A. But let's give a, a warm round of applause to our two guest speakers this morning.
I'm not sure if being named a force of nature is a good thing or bad thing, <laughs> but uh, nature is an amazing thing, so I'm going to go with it. Okay, you know, I want to start off today, I want to uh, turn to Scripture just for a moment, and I'm going to go to Luke 15. You don't have to turn there because I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading it, but uh, in, this, in this chapter, Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of Pharisees. They're upset with him because he's hanging out with sinners, and he gives them three parables. One, and one is the lost coin. I'm going after the lost coin. The other is the parable uh, of the, the prodigal son. And the one I'm going to read from is the parable of the lost sheep. I'm just going to read you one verse from that. And uh, it says here, uh, oh, whoa, I just lost it. I'm in the wrong place. Hold on, 15, 15. Here we go. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Okay, I'm going to leave that with you, and I'm going to return to that in a second, okay? My story's going to start. My family, we lived in Phoenix, well, in Scottsdale, Arizona, it's the suburb of Phoenix. My husband was in corporate America. I had two kids. At the point of this story, when this begins, I have a daughter in first grade. Her name is Lindsay, a son in second grade. His name is Kyle. And we're doing the suburb thing. We go to a church. I do kids' ministry. We're tracking along. The church we go to is in downtown Phoenix. And it has a ministry to kids from the urban community. About two, three hundred kids every Monday night showed up at the church and did like a urban awana kind of deal, if you know what that is. I knew nothing about it, and to tell you the truth, I thought it was great, but I didn't really feel like I needed to. It wasn't my thing. It was tracking, but I did know the leader. I'm going to grab this water here a second. I did know the leader. Her name is Kit. Didn't know her very well, but one day I get a phone call from Kit. Just a second here. So I get a phone call from Kit, and I was a little surprised, and she tells me this story. She said, Debbie, I was formerly a teacher. Uh, we've got 400 kids that have gone through our program in the last 10 years, and nobody has ever graduated from junior high. Yeah, so you know who's coming to the program. And we'd like you to be on this little focus group to figure out how we can really help kids succeed. And I did the very suburban thing, how long do you want me, how much time, and how, how fast can I get done with this? I'm telling you the truth right now, okay? And she said, six weeks, an hour a week, you're going to be on a team with five other people. And I thought, okay, this is going to work. So I said yes. Okay, now, I went to the meeting, and there were five other businessmen who knew nothing about education, and it was a setup, okay? <laughs> Let's just start from that. And so we started, and we decided, well, the thing that needs to happen here is uh, the after-school tutoring program wasn't really making any difference. And oftentimes they don't. And so they'd been putting a lot of energy into it but weren't seeing the results. Well, how did we really address this to help kids? And so we decided we needed to get into the public schools, work within the public schools with the kids, 
as tutors and mentors to really help them do better. And the way we were gonna do that, we were gonna start with one test case, me. <sighs> and a little boy named Cruz. Little Native American, beautiful, very broken child. And at this point, he's in third grade, and he uh, lives in a home with a mom who is very, very ill and an alcoholic, two teenage sisters who are addicts, and his kindergarten sister. He's in second grade. And so we decide, well, what I should do is I should go down and work in the public school with these kids, this, with crews once a week. Well, once a week, you know, I decided this isn't going to work. So it became two, two times a week, and then it became three times a week. Now, two out of the three days, Cruz was not at school. So I would drive to his house. Now, I'm going to use house very loosely here. I'm talking about holes in walls, very little plumbing that rarely works, two mattresses on the floor, no food, a tough situation. Okay, but two days out of three, I would go to their house, walk up onto the porch, knock on the door, and get Cruz and his little sister. I use his name with his permission, by the way, okay? His little sister, and take him to school. Well, this went on for, I don't know, six, eight months. He'd been to my house. We have a relationship now. By the way, many people at this point would say I'm really committed. Three times a week, he's in my house every other weekend. I'm looking pretty committed. I would say I was committed. But one day I get there, and he's not there. So I get in my car, I drive to their house, climb up the stairs, and there's a big padlock on the door. Now, let me back up here a second. I know nothing about poverty. I know nothing about the world he's living in except what I now have been experiencing. And, but I, at that moment, I realized, I think they've been evicted. And so I'm standing on the porch in a neighborhood that is almost totally Spanish-speaking. I know no Spanish. And that's where this verse comes in. Because I remember thinking... I have a choice. If I don't find this little boy today, I may never find him. And so that's when the word of God came. I'm telling you, find the lost sheep. So what do you do? So I'm standing there and I thought, well, all I know to do is ask his neighbors. So I start knocking on doors in a community that I can't talk in Spanish, and I have no, they don't know who I am, and I don't know them, and they were gracious and kind and good to me, and eventually, but nobody knew where they had gone until I finally found this man working on his car, only knew Spanish, he was under the car, I waited for him to come out, and, and I somehow said, this family, where are they? And he somehow to me, communicated to me, he knew where they were. Now, don't do what I did. I, I, I put him in my car, or he got into my car, 
And he directed me across the city of Phoenix, 30 minutes. We're driving across the city of Phoenix when I'm thinking, he just needs a ride. <laughs> okay? And then we pull up in front of this home uh, in an area I know nothing about. And... He gets out of my van, and he walks away. And now I'm convinced he just needed a ride. But he points to this house. So once again, I'm sitting in my van thinking, what do I do now? And I'm telling you, the Lord said, find the lost sheep. And so I got out of my van, and I went up to this house, and I knocked on the door. By the way, guys, if I ever stop crying when I tell this story, I ought to just stop doing this work. Okay, so put up with me. So I knock on the door, and Cruzy and his little sister come to the door. Isn't that amazing? And I say, Cruzy, where's your sisters? He said, I don't know. Oh, well, who's here? Nobody. Ah, who's coming back? No, I don't know. Okay, do you know these people? No. Okay. So I said, well, listen, let's do this. Why don't you and your sister come home with me? I'm going to leave a note. Now I know them. I'm not kidnapping the kid. So I leave a note. Hey, they're with me. Give me a call. I'll bring them back whenever you want them. So we get into my van. Now, picture this. I'm here. Cruz is here. Sister's in the back. And we're driving on the interstate to Scottsdale. So we just left one world. We entered another. And this little, little boy, this precious, beautiful little child, has just, I mean, the shame, the anger, the embarrassment of what's happened is written all over him. And he's sitting next to me, and it's a very quiet drive, and his face is down. Pretty soon he says to me, with his head down, I know it's Tuesday, your day to come. I said, yeah. It's quite a little bit longer. <laughs> then he said this, I prayed you would find me. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> Before I was committed, now I'm called. <laughs> okay, there's a big difference. And it was at that moment that I got home. By the way, we didn't have cell phones in those days. Or I didn't. Somebody might have. And I called the director, Kit. I said, Kit, I've been committed. Now I'm called. It was like the Lord said, Debbie, this little boy prayed you would find him. He said a prayer. Can Debbie find me? There are thousands of kids in our city, and they're praying that same prayer, but they don't have anybody's name to put in the blank. And that's your job. By the way, you guys, that's all of our jobs. And so I called Kit. I said, I need to talk to you. And she said, oh, well, it's about time. And... And so one thing leads to another, and we start a program. And the schools 
just welcome us. And over the course of the next 10 years, we end up with a seven-acre campus just down the street from the state capitol. We end up with programs for teen moms, preschools for babies, Head Start for three to five-year-olds, program K through 12, and we have kids graduating from high school. We started when they, the first kid graduated from high school, we, put, we had now a whole campus with a whole seven acres of stuff. And so we started putting people's pictures, and I said, when this place is plastered, I'll know we've made it. And I want you to know it's plastered today. But, isn't that something? Isn't that something? Uh, so, so this takes place. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump start. A lot of stories happen over the next 10 years. In the city of Phoenix, I was kind of known as Debbie Speck, the school lady. People call me Debbie Speck, school lady. I'm that lady that chased kids who had guns down alleys. I'm the lady that jumped over fences and grabbed those little teenage boys by the scuff of their neck and walked them into school. I'm that lady. <laughs> now, then all of a sudden, I get this phone call. Now, we have a head start, by the way. Okay, do you know how the preschool head start? Okay. I get a phone call. Hi, Debbie. This is Deanna Carlson. I'm with the White House. This is the George Bush uh, era. I'm old. And uh, we'd like to invite you to a conference for Head Start for faith-based entities across the nation. Would you come? I'm like, hold on. Did you say the White House? Yes, the White House. Okay. And I said, well, here's the deal. I'm really too busy. Thanks, but no. So I hang up. She calls back a second time. No, 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 you don't understand. This is the White House. We'd like you to come to this conference. And I said, awesome. I'm too busy. No. So I hang up. The third time she calls me, Debbie, really? We want you to come to this conference. At this point, I said, okay, whatever. I'll go. Fine. And so I didn't think about it. They got the airplane tickets, and I'm going. So, so I've got this group of kids, all boys, in Colorado at a ski trip, because I took kids about eight weeks of ski trips every year. So I'm up there, and I get this phone call from my office. Debbie, they called, and they canceled the conference. I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> I'm going to stay longer. And so 15 minutes later, I get a call from this lady. Hello, Debbie. This is Jean Simpson. I'm the assistant director to the Federal Head Start, and we'd like to invite you to a, a conference. I'm like, y'all just canceled this. And, and she said, no, but we'd like you to come. Well, at this point, I'm like, fine. Okay. So I call the office. They get me a new, new airplane ticket. And so I end up, I'm telling this part because this, this is really fun. So I, I have to drive my van back to Phoenix uh, a little early to get this airplane uh, ride to D.C. So these three boys hop in the van with me. Roman's right here, and I'd led him to Christ a couple year, a week, a months earlier. Coop is here. Huardo's in the back. We got seven hours drive. We get 30 minutes out of Phoenix when I need to do a quick turnaround to get to the airplane and out of nowhere, Koopa sits up and says, Debbie, I want to give my life to Jesus today. I'm like, not today. 
And then right, right then, Gerardo, he, he sits up. Me too, Debbie. I'm like, y'all are driving me crazy. <laughs> this is, and so I turned to Roman. And I said, Roman, you got to lead them to Christ right now. Because I, I got to figure this thing out. And so one thing, like, uh, that's just a side story to this thing. But so, so I get on the airplane, end up in D.C. at 2 in the morning, get to this fancy hotel, don't want to be there. And there's nothing about Head Start Conference. There's nothing. I ask people, we don't know anything about it. I'm like, this is a national conference put on by the White House. So, and I know nothing about government. I don't care. I'm chasing kids through alleys. So, so what happens here is I, I, the next morning, it's 9 in the morning. I got on my go-to-conference clothes. I didn't wear tennis shoes in those days, but now I do. So, uh, so I'm sitting on the side of my bed. The phone rings. Debbie, this is Gene Simpson assistant director to Head Start. And we're ready to start the conference. I'm like, well, go for it. <laughs> and because I've never, I mean, you've gone to a big a federal conference and they call you to tell you they're ready to start? What the heck? <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, where do I go? She says, you come downstairs, go to the Capitol Ballroom. Okay, this sounds better. I get downstairs. There's signs now. That's feeling better pointed this way. So I'm walking down this big hallway, capital ballroom, big ballroom at the end. And I see this, uh, uh, the whole wall has, you know, a, a breakfast buffet. And I'm thinking, all right. So I walk into the capital ballroom, buffet on my left. I turn to the right, big ballroom. In the middle is one Sir, one round table, three people sitting at it, a big easel that says, welcome, Miss Speck. <laughs> so they introduce themselves, Gene Simpson, assistant to the director. And, and then they tell me to get breakfast, and I said, great, and they'd already eaten, so it's me and the buffet. <laughs> I get three pieces of cantaloupe, I sit down at the table. Now, mind you, my plan was to sit at the back of a national conference and do my work. I sit down. I look at these three people. They introduce themselves. One is, one is the head of early education for the United States of America. And, and uh, they hand me a two-page agenda. It's a two-day conference, by the way. And... They hand me the agenda titled One-on-One -on -one Federal Head Start Conference with Miss Debbie Speck. <laughs> and they say, read this. So I read it. Is it okay? Sure. <laughs> so the lady in, in charge of early education for the United States of America starts teaching me. Uh, this goes on for about 10 minutes. And she, she actually, at one point I looked at her and said, or I just, I said, stop everybody. Stop now. This may be, and I said to them, this may feel normal to you, but it doesn't feel normal to me. What's going, I'm thinking candid camera. Anybody in here old enough for candid camera? Well, here's the short end of it. They, the one, Gene Simpson, 
assistant director of Head Start, looks at me and said, Debbie, consider it Providence. Okay. And so it ends up, you guys, I'm going to fast forward. I get to lead Gene Simpson to the Lord at lunch. I know nothing about government, so I think it's a faith-based conference, so I'm talking about Jesus. I have no idea you're not supposed to. <laughs> ends up, I do two days, and they, they send me, and it, it's a mix-up with the White House, and the president's mad at Head Start. Head Start's mad at the president. And so they do this thing in retaliation. But the beauty of it is God orchestrated this thing, and I ended up going to D.C., and life changed, and I got to do the a national work. It all started from finding one lost sheep. And I love crews with all of my heart. And nothing will ever be better than that moment of saying, yes, I'm all in. What do you want me to do? Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, I am born and raised in Denver, in West Denver. So I grew up on um, Federal and Jewel. My family are all West Siders. They grew up on Third and Inc. And I still have a grandma that lives on Eighth and Julian, and she's been there for about 70 years. All to say, growing up and, and to this day, we rarely went east of Broadway. And we certainly never went east of Colorado Boulevard. So this is, it's, it's, it's nice to be on this side of town and to explore East Denver. Um, but I started attending church before I was even born. My parents, um, <laughs> I was in my, in my mother's womb going to church. And my parents, uh, they, they had three children by the time they were 20 about. So young family, young Christians when I was born. So I was raised in the church and, and can say through my youth and in my adolescence, I knew God, but I didn't know God. I was in many ways um, more than going through the motions, but I didn't, I didn't have a relationship with God. And, uh, you know, in my youth, invited him into my heart because that's what my parents told me to do and would come to church because that's what I had to do multiple times a week. And my perception or what I knew of God, what my experience was in my youth was very much a laundry list of things I couldn't do and bad things still happening to good people who love the Lord. And so that didn't make sense in my mind. And and so I just continued to go through the motions, knowing God, but not knowing God. Um, but in, in um, you know, in my youth, the first Bible verse that I ever memorized, and, and this is just indicative of, of the rest of my life, Jeremiah 29, 11, if you don't know it, um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. Um, and so I always held that with me. I that that, you know, I always hid that in my heart. And um, you know, through high school, and and I, as was mentioned earlier, I was blessed with a scholarship from the Daniels Fund that allowed me to go to the University of Colorado at Boulder. 
I grew up not with a lot, um, and no one in my family had gone to college. So going to college and certainly going to Boulder was, was not by design. But I think back to Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you. And that was always part of God's plan for my life. Um, and with my worldly eyes, you know, the Daniels Fund, without getting into their history, um, wasn't, it wasn't an established scholarship when I was in high school. And so it was kind of happenstance, if you will, that I got connected to someone who knew someone who knew someone that was launching this scholarship. And it wasn't even a scholarship I applied for. Um, someone asked me to interview for it because I had, by happenstance, participated in another college access program. And see, with my worldly eyes and my human eyes, this is all by luck. But Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have. So in college, um, you know, I, I was the first time out of my parents' home. They um, did not expect me to leave their house. I'll, I'll say that. Um, but my mom would encourage me, are you going to church anywhere? And I, and I really wasn't. You know, I, I, I still declared God as my savior, but still didn't know God. And a turning point for me was when my mom, and my parents are people of very few words. They don't say a lot, so when they speak, it's like you listen. Um, my mom called me one night and, uh, you know, had asked if I had found a church or if I was connected to any other Christians, and I, and I wasn't. She said, Renee, you're not getting to heaven through me. You have to, you have to find God. Christianity isn't hereditary. So you have to, like, do what you got to do, but just know you're not getting to heaven through me. And that, that began, um, like, a real journey to know God and have a meaningful relationship um, with God. So I spent many years seeking God and asking him to show me his glory and just crying out, I want to know you. I want to know you like my mom knows you. I want to know you like my grandma knows you. I want to know you the way these great people of faith know you because I hadn't known him in that way. And um, he's faithful. And I, I continue to just pray and ask God to show me who he was. And really, for me, it was a return to, to some of the just like basics. The other um, memory verse that I, that I learned early in my, my youth, and, and it's known even to non-believers, John 3, 16. But I meditated on this, for God so loved the world, the world, not just the intelligent, not just the beautiful, not just the perfect, not just the smart, for God so loved the world that he loved me. And, and I had to, in some ways, relearn what I knew of God. Like, he wasn't out to get me. He wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have to be perfect to be um, his child, that God, God so loved the world, including me and all of my imperfections, that he gave his only son. And if you have, if you have a child, or imagine having a child, that you would give your only son. That's how much he loved me. And so, again, I'm continuing to relearn who I know of God, that I am a friend of God. I'm his child, that he calls me his friend. And I don't know if you sing that song here, I'm a friend of God. Oh, 
I just meditate on those words, and that's been my favorite song for years. Who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you're thinking of me? That God called Abraham his friend. Do you know Abraham? Abraham was not perfect. And I started to, in my 20s, really understand God loves me. God is love. And that, um, again, Jeremiah 29, 11, he has a plan for my life. And so I began to just really understand who, who, God, who God was. And I was blessed. I'm a blessed child. Um, I was able to go to college, go to grad school. Um, as was mentioned, I've been with the Denver Scholarship Foundation. Who were, I, it, I'm doing my life's work. When I was in college, um, like I said, no one in my family had ever gone to college, hasn't gone to college since. And I thought, the people that I love don't have access to, to this life. And college really changed the, radically changed the trajectory of my life. And many doors were open. And I thought it wasn't fair that others didn't have access to this opportunity the way that I did. And so early on in college, I, I couldn't name college access or equity work. I couldn't name it, but I was committed to helping more students go to college. Um, volunteered in the admissions office and, and was doing other things um, that, that allowed me to, to do that work. And then uh, an organization, um, there, you know, there was a buzz around the city that this organization, the Denver Scholarship Foundation, was, um, was going to launch. And several folks were sending me this job description. I'm like, no, I'm good. I was at CU Boulder. And, and they said, no, you need to apply. And it's been a wild ride <laughs> um, working for a startup organization, which we were, um, and into the, to the lives that we are impacting to this day. But also during this time, I started running, which is crazy because who runs for fun? Um, <laughs> but for some reason, I, I thought, let me do the Boulder Boulder. Let's, you know, let's do this. And um, I decided to do a marathon. A marathon is 26.2 miles. But that experience really became analogous with my walk with God. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And you fall and you fall and you want to quit. And there are injuries and it doesn't always make sense. But you keep going. You keep going. In um, 2015, my faith was, was challenged um, significantly when I unex unexpectedly lost my brother. He was 31 years old. Um, and I had, been, I had been studying this concept of perseverance. Let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out with us through, through my experiences. I've run a handful of marathons. And so perseverance is, you know, it was just how do you keep going when everything else says stop, give up, it's not supposed to be this hard. Why are you doing this? And, and then my brother died. Um, and my brother's death um, was unexpected, and it was really a season, it became a season that I really questioned, I, I was really wrestling with God. 
I was really wrestling with God. And, and like, I, you know, the, there's going to be hardship, and God is building this perseverance. And I know all the Bible verses. Consider it a pure joy, God says, in your pain um, and in your sufferings. I'm like, oh, man. It, it, um, I took up a defense on my mom's behalf. My mom, you know, she's, she's an amazing Christian. And I just thought, how cruel that a mother loses her, daughter, her son, her baby. And my mom um, found him. He had, he had passed in his sleep in her home. So she had found him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? And I thought, how cruel that this could happen. And, and um, so it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a season of, of just questioning, like, God, what are, what are you doing? How could you allow this to happen? Um, and and it, I returned to the place where I was in my early 20s. God, just show me who you are. Show me who you are. I, you know, I, I'm waiting for miracles in other places. And the Bible says if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed. And I thought, I have faith of a mustard seed. Have you seen a mustard seed? It's tiny. Like, where are you? The mountains aren't moving. Um, and, and really just crying out to God, I... I like, need you, I need you, I need your peace. And he, you know, he picked us up. He picked us up. He, um, through lots of prayer, um, we're able to, to find peace and find joy. And like in a marathon, put one foot in front of the other and not quit. And that's the God that I've come to know today that, you know, Christianity the Bible doesn't say it's going to be easy, right? Your life isn't all of a sudden easy. But you, keep, you get up and you keep going. God says the righteous fall seven times, but they get up. And seven, not seven literally, seven is a powerful number in the Bible, right? There's lots of meaning behind the number seven. The righteous fall seven times, but they get up. They get up. They keep going. And I was talking to a mentor, and I said, oh, sometimes life seems so hard and and you know, my faith is tested. And, and she said, who said it was going to be easy? <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> uh, who said it was going to be easy? But God is building this perseverance in us. To this day, when I go to a race and I watch people cross the finish line, whether I, run the ra I ran the race or not, I get emotional <laughs> seeing people finish the race, especially a marathon, because they're tired, they're beat up. They're hurting, but they finish the race. In James 1.12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life and that the Lord has promised to those who love him. They have finished the race and received the crown of life. And I remember my races, they put the, the medal over your, over your neck and I just imagine God saying, job well done my good and faithful servant. And so my, you know, my, my encouraging, my encouragement to you are in summary is that don't, don't give up, don't quit. It's going to be hard, but you're a child of God. I'm a child of God and he knows the plans that he has for our lives. He has a plan for you to prosper. 
It's not going to be easy. Like a marathon, man, I wanted to quit. I'm not a naturally gifted runner. And it takes training, and it takes commitment. And 26 miles is never not 26 miles. Like the marathon is always hard. What happens is we build our perseverance to be able to complete it. It's never not going to be hard. What happens is you become better at handling hard. That's perseverance. That's what God is building in us. Even when it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense when my brother died. It didn't make sense. All these other things that have ex I've experienced in my life doesn't make sense, but God is building in me a perseverance that I'll finish the race. Amen. We're going to take just about 10 minutes here for some questions and answers um, with you guys. And so it's amazing to me that neither one of you talked about your work, like what you're currently doing, which is totally fine, because I think you were talking about the making of a vessel of God. So um, I guess uh, I think the first one I want to ask is, like, uh, you finished the race, how many kids have you seen finish the race of higher ed in 15 years? And how does it make you feel? Thousands. Uh, we've, we've scholarship probably 20-ish thousand students. Um, and our success rate is 83%. So a lot of students, when we talk about colleges, technical two-year and four-year institutions. So we, we believe that all those pathways are college. That's how we define college. And what we know in the state of Colorado and in Denver, in the next couple of years, over 80% of jobs in Denver are going to require some sort of post-secondary credential. And so what happens if you don't have one? For me, really, college is a means to the end because what college allowed me is to have a life of my choosing and a life of freedom, really, that I could work where I want to work, I could live where I want to live, and I could make my own... I can make my own decisions and, and have freedom of choice. And so that's, that's what it's all about. That's the work that I'm doing. And college is a means to that. And it's specifically very personal to me because I grew up in DPS. I graduated from a DPS school and, and worked as a counselor or an advisor in the school that I graduated from. And so I see me. I see my brothers. I see my cousins. Literally, um, my family are—they're um, in those buildings, and so it's—it's it's deeply personal work. And as I mentioned earlier, um, I want folks—I want young people in Denver to have access to the same opportunities that I've had access to. And Debbie, how many students are currently being impacted nationally through Elevate? And then talk a little bit about your work with the Navajo Nation and why you feel called to spend the rest of your years doing that. Yeah, so, you know, the fill in the blank, those names, yeah, we're right now right around 12,000 kids nationally a year. And then, uh, and growing. And in the course of taking Elevate National, um, one of my passions was to see it first and foremost started on the Navajo Nation. And that's because my husband and I had been, through our work in D.C., had, I'd spent a lot of 
time on the Navajo Nation and fallen in love with the people. And, and it really comes back to when these kind of programs or opportunities um, happen, our First Nations are left out. It's the lost sheep, you guys. And so it's not the easy place. It is the hard place to do this work. I mean, it is hard there for so many reasons, lack of resources, uh, so many reasons. And yet God has uh, given us an incredible Navajo team, and they are knocking. It's the president's, I mean, the blessings, the open doors, the, the opportunities there are beyond what I could have ever prayed for. And so our, our little team of teacher mentors just trained the whole school district on how to relate to kids. That's crazy. Crazy, so. crazy cool. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the Crow Nation's next. Montana, here we come. Anybody know them? <laughs> Let's go. Okay. What's it like... Uh, it's like, what's the journey been like to be a woman and uh, in, in really two different generations represented to like break the glass ceiling and lead? Me? I'm the old one here. So I, I was in the glass ceiling back in the civil rights movement when we were still like Hardy could vote. So uh, sister, I'm an Enneagram 8. And I will tell you, in that generation, a female leader, uh, especially in the evangelical Christian world, was very difficult. And I came out of not a Christian background. I was like a hippie, okay? So I was free, barefoot, and braided long hair, right? And so, and picketing and stuff, and I came to Christ through the Jesus Freak Revolution movement. And so, but, but here's the beauty is I thought I had just, I mean, I hit the gold mine. I was free in Christ. And so the, a lot of the, the pressure to not succeed, it was difficult. But a lot of it, I just kind of let it fly by because I wasn't smart enough to know it was, I was supposed to do all those things. I was just pretty fired up about Christ. It, even, can I tell about Dallas? So I decided I need to go to seminary because I just really didn't know anything about the Bible. And so I decided to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't know if you know anything about it. It's rather conservative and, um, and difficult. And it was, they had just opened their doors to women. There were 1,500 guys, five girls, women, all in dresses. And, uh, and so I went there. And I, I got there. And I didn't know they didn't accept women until I got there. So that's how naive I was, and, and yet um, it was a fabulous experience. They were wonderful. I loved the training I got, but one experience was I had to take Preaching 101. Everybody did. So I took Preaching, and my grade card came out, and uh, for me, it, it, it was not labeled Preaching 101. It was Speaking 101 because women don't preach. And so I was like, okay, moving on. You know... So I had decided during that point that God hadn't called me to the issue of women in the church. That was not my calling, and that would distract me, and I need to stay focused on what he had called me to, so move on. And that's, I, but it was hard. It was emotionally hard, because I always felt guilty for being a leader. 
How do you, when did you turn? Oh, yesterday. <laughs> uh, I, had, I married a wonderful husband who endured a lot from my uh, processing of it. Um, <laughs> processing. I yeah. think I know what that sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Well, at seminary, I had to do an issues class, and I had to do a whole presentation to the whole seminary on women's role in the church. That was a really bad idea. <laughs> I chose it. He endured six months of horror. But at the end, I did the presentation, and all these people came, and I gave, here are the different ways people view biblically how this thing works out. And in the end, they were waiting for some, you know, oh, what's she going to say? And I said, here's my deal. God hadn't called me to this. So y'all figure it out. I'm going to go do what I was called to. <laughs> Walked off stage, and they went, what the heck? <laughs> and uh, so I've really tried to, but, but underneath it all, I'm telling you, it was painful. Mm. And it's been hard. And I don't the, the truth is, guys, there's so much love and need and opportunity. I don't have time to get stuck in it anymore. Mm -hmm. I just don't have time. I, I'm, let's go. Yeah. Amen. Anything I mean, I, I've, I've had to ask God for a spirit of boldness. You know, we, especially women, come from this, or often experience a mindset of, am I good enough? Do I belong here? Am I smart enough? Am I talented enough? Um, and you got to hang out with me. <laughs> Except her. <laughs> Except her. Um, and, and especially, um, you know, growing up with very limited resources and other folks being more educated that, you know, you may have heard of imposter syndrome. And I just told, asked God to silence those voices um, and, and give me the confidence and the boldness um, in any of the spaces that I'm in. And, and, and I am now. <laughs> I, I, I'm so thankful to work at, a, at an organization that values my voice, that um, values my input, that uh, seeks my input and really works to incorporate the ideas that I have and, and takes my feedback um, on different issues and, and really integrates that into policy and procedures. So I'm, I'm blessed and that's why I'm still there 15 years later that I my voice is, is honored there. Do you mind if I tap a little bit into our experience over the last two months talking about this speaking opportunity? Sure. So she made me promise that she would come speak. She would not have to get up in front and do what she just did that she would only do a panel if I gave her the questions two weeks ahead of time. And she came with printouts of every question and all of her answers. And in the morning, you changed and said, I can, I can, I'll take the mic, you know. You have to understand, I, I grew up in a church pretty conservative-ish. Um, and Sunday morning, the pulpit, I understood and I understand the sanctity of, of that, um, but it, it hasn't been a place where I've seen women. Um, so to, to be here was quite a stretch out of <laughs> any of my comfort zones. So, so I watched you with your staff of 40, and you own that room. They love you. It seems like when you walk into the church door, it's almost like you can't be yourself in some ways. Is that correct? Like bring your full leadership to bear upon the church you've been at for decades. I'm not even speaking evil of your church in any way. I'm just saying 
There was a I mental. There was a mental block. <laughs> there was a mental block. It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she did fine, didn't she? Yeah. Right. Thank you. Okay, so so closing question would be, um, for many women in this room who are pondering this idea of all in, I mean, you guys have given your heart, soul, all life. your career, your life, everything, uh, your passion for this, uh, and I think American Christianity views that as optional, and so because of we live in a wealthy world, we can choose whether or not to do the all in thing and just do the church thing on Sunday mornings. But you obviously have found something by going all in. So I want to close with just asking you, what would you say to people who are like wrestling in their spirit right now with what God might be calling them to do? And what they're calling them to do is going to take greater sacrifice, greater involvement, greater all inness. I don't want to oversimplify it. But the, the hardest part is getting started, like the first step. And so jump in, like don't overthink it. Don't, don't think about it too much and get caught up in, is this the right thing? Is it not the right thing? Is it the right time? It might never feel like the right time, but jump in, get started, and know that there's a need for love in so many different places. You don't have to look to a reservation or a different country. There's there's need right here in this building. Um, and, and, and so just, just get started. <laughs> Take a leap of faith. Yeah, yeah. mentor crews is what you're saying. Mentor like, crews, I mean, we talked about the young women it's in this It's a church. trap. <laughs> I will say that in, in my work, um, especially you know in the last couple of years, there's a quote by Mother Teresa if you want to save the world, go home and love your family. And that has resonated. I mean, there's need in the community, and we need to fulfill that need. Um, but I, I have, have really reflected on, you know, I'm out here working with all thousands of students in DPS who need me and mentoring these young girls. And there's so many people that have the same last name of me as me who, who need love and who, need to, who, who have, have a lot of need. And um, so that honestly has been my focus most recently is to return, not return, but my, you know, there's a lot of need in my family and that's, that is my priority. And a little five-year-old, right? And my son. Yeah. yeah. You talk a lot about your son. He's sweet. He's, he's a five-year-old little boy and I'm just so thankful to God for him. Debbie, close us out. You know, uh, my favorite verses is Joshua 1.9. You know, uh, um, Joshua's standing on the Jordan ready to go in, and God says to him, be strong and courageous. Four. Now, five, we would say this to our kids in the inner city. When it's dark and you're sad and you don't know if how life was working for you and you're scared and you don't know what to do, I want you to do this. I want you to raise your hand in front of your face. And I want you to remember these five words. I am with you always. For I am with you always. Be strong and courageous. For I am with you always. And I just think we, we so often are living, we're on the winning team. You know, 
we know the final score, and it's not going to be what the Broncos are today. And so, sorry. <laughs> By the way, I went to TCU, and they're winning, and they're fourth in the nation right now. But anyway, so, but, but we are on the winning team. We know the end score, and I think we ought to live like it. So let's go win. So get out of bed. Let's go. Yes. All right. So I actually wanna, I want to I want to close in a different way. And uh, the thought came to me about two minutes ago. So um, I think the whole thing has been like, uh, you know, my, my old college professor said, a message prepared in the mind reaches minds. A message prepared in the heart reaches hearts. But a message prepared in the life reaches lives. Uh, and the All In series is about lives. And uh, we, we get really weird about this in the Christian faith because we don't want to give glory to man. We want to give glory to God, all that stuff. But I think we miss something in the powerful ripple effect of a life. And so I'm going to ask the, the music team to come. And we're actually going to, I want you to think about two things. We're going to sing the song. Music team, if you could come on up. Uh, Be Thou My Vision is what we're going to sing. And I want you to come on up. Uh, I want you to think about letting God be your vision but I actually want these two women to sit up here while the song is going because I want that picture of this is what happens when God becomes your vision, right? You're seeing it fleshed out. This is why I didn't want to preach a series on Ruth and Deborah and, you know, famous women of the Bible. It's like, no, we have famous women of the Bible right here uh, in our city. And then, and then if the Lord's saying something to you, it is in, you, you must obey or you will be miserable, Right? And so I want you actually to spend this time about be, God being your vision, seeing the picture of these women, and pondering what God might be saying to you, like, in this moment. And so let, let's do that in closing. Let's stand together and uh, sing that song. You guys can see it right up here. I know it's really uncomfortable to watch all these people stare at you, but uh, you have blessed us. Let's give them a hand one more time. Thank you.